So for better or for worse, and, and probably for worse, uh, I'm a child of the 90s, and uh, there was a lot of you know, common culture stuff that was part of the 90s that's now sort of gone away. So you're going to have to forgive me for this. I'm going to take us right at the beginning of this talk to a phrase that was really big back then. For some of you, this phrase may mean nothing, but if you grew up any time close to when I grew up, this phrase is probably at least a little familiar from then, and that's this, get a life. You heard this phrase before? Good. Okay. I heard it a lot. Usually it was pointed towards me, but... Get alive. When did, when did a person hear this? When would you say this to a person? Well, you know, you might say this to a person who's just doesn't have a clue. I mean, maybe they're just not very smart. And they just, you know, you try to get something through to them and it's just, everything goes over their head and you think, man, get a life. You don't understand anything, you know? Or it could just be that this is somebody who's not really tethered to reality, you know? I mean, I, I literally, at one point in my life, this is no joke, at one point in my life, I had a friend who had a napkin collection. This was just a thing of his. Wherever he went to eat, you know, if it was a paper napkin, he saved a paper napkin. He had napkin collection from all over the place. And, you know, in my back of my mind, I'm thinking, man, get a life, you know? You're just not tethered to reality. It's a napkin. Throw it away. Move on to the next restaurant. Whatever, you know? But, or, or maybe it's just somebody who's absorbed in things that do not matter at all. You know what I mean? Like, there's just somebody who just seems like they're, you know, it's, it's that 45-year-old guy who play, you know, come, work, goes, goes to work, hopefully, goes to work during the day, and then comes home and plays video games until midnight, right? And you want to go, man, get a life, because you're getting absorbed in stuff that doesn't really matter. How can you sit for seven hours straight and play video games and not actually experience anything? And, and, and maybe that's the point that I want to make in this moment, is that there's almost a little bit of, I mean, get a life is a contemptuous statement. I wouldn't recommend making it to a lot of people, but there's almost a little bit of a benevolent side of it. It's almost like you're saying, look, there's, there's joy and fulfillment uh, in life that you're missing out on, that you're not experiencing what a person ought to experience in life. You're not getting the whole experience. You need to get a life. You need to get the whole experience. So, but, but this morning, here's what I want to talk to you about. I want to ask you the question, what about the person who is very smart, they're very intelligent, they have a clue, right? And they're very tethered to reality, maybe more so than most, and they are very much absorbed in things that do matter. As a matter of fact, they look very sacrificial, they look like they're giving of themselves constantly, and they tend to be very concerned about other people in other situations. What about individuals like that that still need to get a life? In fact, they, wouldn't, they would tell you, if you were to talk to them about it, if you were to dialogue with them about it, they would say, I need to get a life. Because I'm not experiencing the, the, all the joy and the fulfillment out of life that I really feel like I should. As a matter of fact, I kind of feel like I just don't have much of an identity. I don't have much of a life, and I need to get a life. What about the person who's doing all the right things, or at least it feels like they're doing all the right things, and yet they're still not getting out of life what they should? And that's what we're going to be spending our time talking about in this very last message um, of moving on. And what I'd like to talk to you about is a role that we often play in life, almost all of us at some point in life will have a little bit of this going on. We'll step into this role, and when we do, it begins to take away the life that we have. And I want to talk to you about what the Bible says about it. Now, the role that I want to introduce you to in this message is, if I can get, there we go, is the role of the rescuer, right? For some of you, 
All I have to do is say this, and you already have something popping into your mind, something, some part of your life, or maybe someone in your life who sort of plays the role of the rescuer, and I, that's all I have to say, and you already know what it is that I'm talking about. But maybe you're in this room and say, I'm not really sure yet what it is that you're saying. Let me, let me, let me talk to you a little bit about how a person comes to be a rescuer. A person comes to be a rescuer when they, at some point, adopt in their life the idea, and they don't do this on purpose, it just comes to them through life circumstances and situations, that love is about cleaning up someone else's messes. That's what love is about, right? Think with me for a second. This is a, this is an, a, a very extreme example, right? Extreme example. But there's some, I'm, I, would, I would, if I was a betting man, I would wager that there's somebody in this room that this absolutely fits. That as a child, this child grows up in a home where a parent is potentially addicted to something um, or potentially just, an, uh, just a, a neglective parent or a parent who's just a mess in some way or another. And this little child somehow has to grow up immediately. They're six years old, but they gotta be a grown-up. And not only do they have to be a grown-up, they have to look after the adults. They have to become the adults and they have to find a way to, to, to take care of everyone else. They're having to clean up after uh, dad's mess in the bathroom, clean up after mom's mess in the bathroom. They were out drinking all night the, the night before. They gotta clean up after that. And then they gotta go make lunches for the siblings and make sure that the siblings are okay to get to school, right? And again, this is an extreme example. But what happens to that person is they go through this over and over again until at some point, somewhere in the gear work internally of their world, they come to this conclusion that love is about cleaning up someone else's messes. Now, you don't have to be in a situation that extreme for this to happen, but you get what I'm saying. It's not that if you were to ask this person, they say, oh yeah, that's what real love is all about. It's just that somehow it takes root in their core. Now, not all rescuers are the, uh, are the same. Playing this role can look, look different ways. I, I want to show you three different ways that the rescuer role can pop up, different ways this can look like. If you're thinking about people in your life who might have a little bit of this rescuer role going on, or maybe you have a little bit of this rescuer role going on in your life, L let me show you the first one. The first one is what I call the coach. Now, the coach is someone who is very invested in making things better. They want to fix. I don't know if I have any fixers in the room. Guys especially, we have a little bit of this. We're, we're sort of, we sort of lean towards this um, right out of the gate. But, but coaches are fixers. They want to fix the situation. They want to fix the person. They want to find a way to, to, to make things be better. And it's always for the other person's good. You always know that you're coaching when you're putting pressure on someone to do something for their own good. I want you to, I want you to be able to learn how to do this because that's what's right for you. It's what a coach does. And, and, and the mantra of the coach is this, I could help you so much if you'd just listen to me, right? I could help you so much. I mean, I could help my boss. If my boss would just listen to me, I could help him straighten up like that. If my employee would just listen to me, if my spouse would just listen to me, if my kids would just listen to me, I could help them be so much better for their own good, right? If this company would just listen to what, what they're doing wrong, if I could just tell this company what they're doing wrong, if I could just speak to this, this team that I'm in, or if I could just uh, find a way to, to you know, the, the, sometimes it even happens in the body of Christ, we'll be in a small group, and we're like, I can fix my small group, you know? If they would only listen to me, I could, I could help them be so much better. The problem, of course, of being a coach is that our goal, right, we said love is about cleaning up other people's messes. By fixing them, we're gonna be closer. 
We're going to make the situation better. Or if it's a relationship, we're going to end up being tied in closer. But the problem is the things that we try to do to fix put pressure on the other person. They put pressure on the situation. And that pressure ends up sometimes breaking the other person or the situation and they pull away. And the thing that we're trying to do to make things better actually backfires on us. And we'll come back to that. Here's another way that the whole rescuer role can present itself, and that's in what I call the maid. Now, the maid is a person who puts up with cleaning the other person's messes, and they feel like it's totally normal that the other person shouldn't have to deal with their problems. It's like, this is the, again, here's another, here's an extreme example, but the extreme example, how many of us have known someone who was in an adult relationship with a, somebody who was maybe abusive, and, we, and, and you say to that person, you need to get out of that relationship and be safe. You, get, you need to get to safety. You don't need to let somebody beat up on you. You don't need to let someone abuse you. By the way, if you're in this room and someone is, is physically abusing you, this goes for you too. You need to get out. You need to be safe. That's the important thing. Find safety. Reach out to a trusted source. But a person who tends to be in this role of the maid will say, no, it's really fine. I'm just going to stay. I'm just going to hang in there. It's really okay. They almost seem protective of the person who's making massive messes in their life doesn't seem right, but that's the role of the maid. And, and the mantra of the maid is this, at least I don't have to worry about losing you, right? Because if we're cleaning up after somebody constantly, the one thing we know is that not everybody else is offering to clean up after them. We're the, pretty much the only person who has that role in their life. So as long as that role is something that we're allowed to do, we feel like, okay, at least I don't have to worry about losing them. Even though what we're afraid of losing is something that's harming us, right? Now, by the way, I told you what the downside of the coach is. Let me tell you what the downside of, the, of, of having that maid role, right, is that there will always be a part of you on the inside that says love is about cleaning up other people's messes until that is addressed, until we reach inside and start dealing with that. That will always be there, but there will always be another part of you inside that says this isn't fair. There will always be another part of you inside that says I shouldn't have to be doing this, and what happens when those two things collide is called anger, resentment. And it begins to bubble out of control. And then you have a person who is, you know, what, what we would call they're enabling someone, right? They're allowing someone to keep going on in their destructive behavior. But at the same time, they're very angry with that person. It becomes a very difficult lifestyle. Let me walk you through the very last one. And that's the groupie, right? Now, the groupie is someone who is looking for some, a situation or a person that is absolutely exceptional. In their dating life, they're looking for somebody who has the charisma, who has the talent, somebody with a massive degree, somebody who's going places in this world, somebody who's gonna have an amazing career, somebody with a massive bank account, something, something. They're looking for something really exceptional uh, to, to latch onto, someone that they can hitch their wagon to this person's star. And so it's like once they find that person who is in some way exceptional, man, they will do anything. They just are right there trying to make that work. Or maybe it's even with a job. It's maybe a job that's not a good job, but there's something that feels exceptional about it. And so they'll go into an interview and say, I'll do anything to have this job. And the mantra of the groupie is this, you're so special that I'll do whatever it takes to have you. You're so special, whatever it takes, blank check, whatever I have to do, however many messes I have to clean up, how, whatever needs I have to meet in your life, that's fine for me because you're so special in one way or another, right? And so I hope you can see when we're kind of going through this, I know that in my life I've 
sort of played all these roles at different times, um, but I also have people in my life that I can point to, friends and, and you know, college folks that I was friends with in college and, and even people that I, I work with now in my coaching ministry that very much have these roles going on in their life, and they're very smart, and they're very sacrificial, and it's not that they don't have a life because they're not absorbed in things that matter. They are absorbed in things that matter, but they would be the first to stand here and tell you, I need to get a lot. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. By the way, one of the first things that comes up when I talk to people about this in my office um, is the response, but Jonathan, isn't this what God wants me to do? I mean, what I'm doing is I'm showing sacrificial love. I'm, I'm giving of myself. Yes, are they a mess? Sure. But, but God gives of himself to me when I'm a mess. Isn't this what I'm supposed to do? It's unconditional love. Isn't this what the Bible says my job is? Well, let's just go to the Bible and see. Let's look at what the Bible has to say about this. And then this is all we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about rescuing and about personal freedom and about personal responsibility. First, I want to take you to a verse. This is in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 5. It's a very powerful verse. And we're going to branch everything out that we do this morning on this verse. Look at what this says. For each one, each person, should do what? Should carry their own load. For each person should carry their own load. Now this verse can be confusing sometimes because if, you, if you're a student of the Bible and you're, you're familiar with this passage, you would say, but wait, but wait a minute, Jonathan, if I go several verses earlier in this passage, it also says that we are to bear one another's burdens. So which is it? Are we to bear one another's burdens? Or is each person supposed to carry their own load? The answer is yes. Because in the Greek, there's two different words that we're talking about. The word burden, when the Bible says that we're to bear one another's burdens, that word means a crushing load, something that is more than any person would ever be able to carry on their own. So this would be what happens when someone in our family of faith, or someone in the body of Christ goes through a tremendous tragedy, something happens that's just terrible in their world, and we bear up underneath that with them. We come together as the body of Christ and we say, we're going to support you in this time because this is more than any person should have to carry on their own. That's what the Bible is talking about when we're to bear one another's burdens. But that isn't the word that's used here for carry their own load. The word that's used here for load is the Greek word fortion. We get our English word portion from it, and it means that God has given each of us a portion that we are to carry, and each one of us should carry the portion that God has given to us, and this is a powerful thought. I mean, this is a liberating thought for some of us in this room. God is saying, I have given you something to carry, and each person should carry their own portion. Well, what is this load that we are supposed to carry? What is it that God has called us to, to walk through life managing on our own? Well, I will tell you this. When I was going through the scriptures, I, I tried to look for just about any passage that I could find where, where God was talking or Jesus was talking about um, what we're supposed to carry in life, what our personal responsibility is. And I kept coming up with these three themes over and over again. And then it was interesting to me that those three themes are in this passage in Galatians that we're looking at. So let me back up a verse and we're gonna walk through this and we'll talk about what is the load that God expects us to carry. Look at this, this is in Galatians chapter six, same, same passage here, verses four and five. This is a different translation. It says, pay careful attention to what? To your own work, right? So this is one of the problems when we take the role of the rescuer because what are we paying attention to? The other person's work. But here the scripture says, pay careful attention to your own work for what's gonna happen, for then you will get 
the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else, for we are each, this is a different translation of the verse we read a second ago, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. So let's just walk through this. What is the load that we're talking about? And you'll find this, if you look through scripture, you'll find these three themes surfacing over and over again. Here's the first one. Pay careful attention to your own work. This is self-discipline, right? This is our ability to say, what is my goal all of us have different goals. This, and we're not just talking about spiritual goals. We're just talking about life goals. All of us have life goals. Self-discipline is about saying, what is it going to take to get me to my goal? And how am I going to have to teach myself to make, make adjustments and changes so that I will actually reach the goal that I've decided to reach? That's self-discipline, right? And then look at this. The next one is, for then you will get what? The satisfaction. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about self-worth. Right? At some point, we are responsible for developing a sense of our own self-worth. You say, well, but, but doesn't, is, isn't the, the idea that God is what's special about me and not anything inherently in me? However you want to look at that, the bottom line is, if you're a God follower, there is something special in you because God is in you. So there is self-worth, but a lot of us as God followers are walking around as though we don't have self-worth walking around very upset with ourselves and very down on ourselves. And I think one of the things the scripture is saying here is when we focus on our own work, then we have the opportunity to actually develop some of the self-worth that God expects us to have. Because I'll tell you, a person who doesn't have any self-esteem isn't much good on the job. God wants us to be good on the job. We have to be able to look inside and recognize the value that God has placed in us. So that's part of it. Self-worth is part of it. And then look at the end, this last bit, of a job well done. What are we talking about here? We're talking about accountability, right? We're talking about what is the final outcome and how are we able to handle the outcomes of what we do, right? And we'll talk here in a minute about a little bit more about this accountability thing. But for whatever it's worth, looking at this teaches us something about taking on the role of the rescuer. Because we only take on the role of the rescuer, this is very important, I hope you get this, we only take on the role of the rescuer when at some point in our life we run into somebody who is not carrying part of their load, we bump into someone who is not managing the things that God has called them to manage. They, they don't have a, a full sense of self-discipline. They don't have a full sense of self-worth. They don't have the accountability. And so here's what happened. We try to replace it for them, right? Why do we coach people? Because they don't have self-discipline. And so we're going to be their self-discipline for them, right? We're, we're going to, you know, give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about when I talk about the coach, right? Because we all need this. We all need an internal coach. We need something to happen inside of us that's a coach. So if I have a job interview at 8.15 in the morning, I need something inside of my head that goes, you need to set your alarm for 6.30, you need to get up, you need to take a shower, you need to get dressed, you need to look presentable, and you need to make sure that you handle this interview in a professional way. That is the internal coach. It is self-discipline. What is it that I need to do to achieve my goals in this life and this world, right? But when you run into somebody that doesn't have self-discipline, it's very tempting to try to be their self-discipline for them. So you have someone in your life who has an 8.15 job interview, but you know they're not gonna do any of those things. So what do we do? We go up to them and we say, you better set your alarm for 6.30. You better get up in the morning. You better take a shower. You better dress nice and look like you're presentable. You better be professional in the interview. What are we doing? We're trying to be what they aren't for themselves. Right? Or when we're trying to, trying to play the role of the maid, what are we doing? This is a person who is not accountable. They're not living with the consequences of their life. And I'm not even just talking about bad consequences. Could be good consequences, bad con consequences, neutral consequences. I'll give you an example of what I mean by neutral, right? Maybe 
there are some, you know, I know um, we, we, we might have some 16-year-old guys in this room. You, they would be old enough, they'd be in the hub, so they'd be in the hub on Wednesday night, but they'd be in here on the, uh, on the weekend. And maybe as a 16-year-old, you have an experience kind of like mine. My mother was very gracious to me. She was very sweet to me, and, and unintentionally, she gave me the impression that laundry pops up in your closet magically. Right? I, I had the impression that you wear clothes, you take them off, and you leave them in your floor, and then magically... A, few days later, they show up in your closet ironed and ready to go, you know? It turns out it doesn't actually work that way, right? Just in case there are any 16-year-olds in the room, I'm totally bursting your bubble there, but it doesn't work that way, right? This is the thing about accountability. Accountability is recognizing that my life creates laundry of some sort, right? Maybe good, maybe negative, it may be neutral, but I've got to deal with the laundry that I create in life. That's accountability. I've got to deal with it, right? But what happens if you have somebody in your life who doesn't deal with the laundry in their life is we get tempted to just do their laundry for them, and that will keep the, that will keep the wheels rolling. That will keep the car on the track, and we'll keep moving forward, right? Or finally, right, the, with, the, with, with the, the role of the groupie, it's that you've got someone who's just, they haven't developed their own sense of self-worth, and we're like, but they're so awesome. They're so wonderful. They're so exceptional. they got so many good things going on. And so we want to show up in their life, and we want to continually pour into them that they are so, they're worth so much. And as a matter of fact, you know, it's some, in some ways, it's a positive thing to share with somebody how much they're worth. But, in, but cleaning up their messes to show them how much they're worth always ends up backfiring. And so this is how we get here. If you're, if you're looking at your life and saying, man, sometimes I really gravitate towards this role. Sometimes I end up kind of playing this part. How did I get here? Well, how you got here is there was at least one person in your life. I'm not saying this is for everybody that you've tried to rescue, but there has at least been somebody early on that really wasn't carrying part of their load and the temptation was too great to try to carry it for them. And that's how this started. But let's talk about what the Bible has to say about what we need to do when this happens. Because this, this, is, this is true. This is a key, and I want to share it with you. Being a rescuer always comes at a price. Always, 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 without exception. And that price is going to be your identity. You're going to lose who you are. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's, let's take this to the scriptures, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Proverbs 19, 19, second half of the verse says this. If you rescue them once... Right? If you reach in and you try to rescue somebody who's a mess, if you rescue them once, you will have to do it again. You'll have to. It'll become, when we talk about somebody having to do something, we're talking about being drafted into a job. We're talking about being conscripted. You are now, this is now who you are. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. So have you ever been to a concert, um, big, you know, important concert, tons and tons of people coming to it, TSOs in town, Christmas season, something like that, and you're going to this concert, and, um, you know, guys, you're, you're trying to be polite to your date, um, you know, or your, you know, your fiance, your spouse, whatever. You go to that front door. It's the front door of the building, and nobody's holding open doors and the doors aren't propped open and so you reach out and you open the door for your date to go through but as soon as your date goes through you realize you're going to be there a while because they just keep on coming you know and it's just like this long long line of people you realize I have become the doorman right and beyond all of that now your date she's got her candy she's got her popcorn she's sitting there she's listening to the first part of the concert you're still there you're you're still the doorman right and this is what the Bible is telling us. If we open the door once for this person's failure to be whole, 
for their inability to carry their own load or for their unwillingness to carry their own load, we open the door for that and we say, it's going to be okay. I'm going to carry this for them a little bit and then they're going to do better. They're going to get better and we open the door. But it's not just one problem. All of a sudden, it's this huge bunch of problems and we have become their doorman for the lack of wholeness. And we stand there. We don't ever get to go in ourselves. We don't get to move forward. This is what the Bible's saying. If we do it for them once, we'll have to do it again. And by the way, I want to share this other verse with you, which, by the way, I never thought I would ever get to use this verse in a sermon. As, pa- as a pastor, you, sometimes you read a verse and you go, I don't think I'm ever going to know where to, where to put that, but I found the perfect place for it. So now it's ensconced in this message. Here it is. It's Ecclesiastes 10, verse 11. If a snake bites before you charm it, what's the use of being a snake charmer? Right? Why? Because we think we're going to reform them. When we rescue, we think we're going to make them better. We think we're going to charm the snake. We're going to make it better. We're going to help them be a better person. But the problem is their brokenness breaks us before our wholeness heals theirs. Right? And then all of a sudden you have two broken people. It's like even if you have achieved wholeness, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but even if you have achieved wholeness, then, then you're dealing with a person who still is not quite whole, and the hope is that I'm going to bring my wholeness to them, and then we will be two whole people, but math doesn't work that way. You can't take two proper fractions and make two wholes. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. So here's what we're talking about. What, and, and by the way, let me back up for, for just a second. Let, I, I want to tell you what I think is maybe the biggest problem, because I deal with this a lot in my office and my coaching ministry with people in relationships, and that is that when we start to do this, our identity starts to get morphed with theirs. It becomes very hard to separate where, what is their problem and what is mine. Look at what Solomon says in Proverbs. He says, my child, if, you have, if you've put up security for a friend's debt or agreed to guarantee the debt of a stranger, what is he talking about? He's like, if you've co-signed on someone else's bad debt, right? He says, if you've trapped yourself by your agreement and are caught by what you've said, follow my advice and save yourself. That's pretty strong language, right? Why would a person, why why would he say that? Why such strong language? Look at what he says. Because you have placed yourself at your friend's mercy. He said, the minute that you co-signed on that loan, it became your loan too. It became your debt too. And whatever happens to you in the future is largely dependent on what that other person chooses to do. And your identity has become merged with their identity. Here's the thing. We're obviously not talking about financial debts this morning, but the point still holds. When we co-sign on the loan of another person's wholeness, there's a debt there. There's a part of their wholeness they're not carrying, but we go ahead and we co-sign for it and we make good on it. And then the scripture says that at that point, we become at their mercy. Our identities meld. And here's the thing. At that point, it becomes so hard to know when do I end and they begin? Is it my problem or is it their problem? That's why I, you know, I named this talk, um, it's not me, it's you. It's, a, it's that point of going, you know what, I've been treating this like this is my problem and it's not fair to the other person. I'm carrying part of their load for them and now we've got this merged identity. And the, one of the hardest parts of this is sometimes the person you're trying so hard to rescue becomes more angry with you than anybody else in the world. Why? Because they don't want their identity merged with somebody else. Right? And there's pushback. And you go, why am I getting pushback? I'm doing all these wonderful things for this person. The pushback is because they, they want their own identity. Sometimes one of the hardest things to say is it's not 
Me, it's you. I want to share one thought with you. This is, and, and honestly, if this is the only thing you get from the entire message this morning, to me it would be worth it. I hope this would be the thing that you'll take away. But it's this thought. Rescuing is a skill that only works in one type of relationship. And it's an unhealthy relationship. See, this is the thing. If, if we're playing the role of the rescuer and we're in an unhealthy relationship, it will actually look more functional than it is. Because there will be somebody making messes and somebody cleaning them up. In the end analysis, it will look more functional than it is. But you know what happens when a person, take the little girl I talked about earlier at the beginning of the message, right? Cleaning up after mom's messes, making the lunches for the siblings, getting them all off to school, playing the role of the rescuer. What happens when she grows up and she starts dating and she finds a healthy person, she ends up in a healthy marriage with somebody who does, you know, maybe not perfect, but definitely doing their part to be whole, definitely carrying their own load. What happens? Then what happens is this precious little girl who had to put up with all this pain as a child, she begins to try to coach him, and he says, I don't really need a coach. She begins to try to play the role of the maid for him, and he says, I don't really need a maid. And she tries to play the role of the groupie, and he says, you know what, I feel pretty decent about myself. I don't really need a groupie. And you know what? It scares that lady to death. Because it's like, well, then how do I love this person? Because this is what love is about. This is how I do love, is I, I rescue. And it can, be, it can look very dysfunctional. Healthy relationship, it can look dysfunctional. In a matter, we, we could say it this way, that when, when we get used to the role of rescuing, we start to fragilize those that we rescue. So if a person really is creating messes, we make them more fragile because we do not expect them to clean up their own mess. Right? It's, it's, it's that idea of if we, don't, if we don't require them to learn what it's going to take, and by requiring, I'm not talking about telling them, hey, this is what you need to do. I mean, if we don't give them the space by saying, I'm not going to clean it up for you, to give them the opportunity to learn what it means to clean it up, they become more and more fragile. But on the flip side, we become threatened by relationships with healthy people that don't need rescuing. So what do we do about this? If you've, if, if you've looked at this and said, you know, man, I really feel like I do have a little bit of this going on in my life. And what do we do about it? You know, it is very hard. I, I told you it's, it's true. It's very hard to say it's not me, it's you. To be able to extract, to be able to, to the, the, Solomon says in his passage, he says, go get released from the loan. Don't even go to sleep before you do. Go get, re- get your name off the paper. And it can be very hard to do that, to go to the other person and say, I've been trying to carry some of your load for you and I can't do that anymore and I'm going to have to take my name off of the co-signer's place. I'm not talking about getting out of the relationship. I'm saying giving that person a chance to rise to the occasion and do what they have not been doing for themselves. It might take a while, but give them a chance to do it. Right? That's hard to say, it's not me, it's you. Harder still to say, it's not you, it's me. Harder still to say, part of this has been the fact that I've been playing a role that hasn't been helpful for anyone in this relationship. To recognize that maybe we have been fragilizing someone or to recognize that maybe we've, we've been controlling in healthy relationships and that hasn't worked. To, to please, to, to let a person make mistakes, to let them take responsibility for their own actions, to experience good and bad success and setbacks, and not to take ownership of their outcomes. Oh, that's the hardest part. Remember how I said earlier that underneath the role of the rescuer, there's this anger, resentment that builds up underneath? Why? What's the, what's the, I mean, we know it's not fair to have to clean up someone else's messes, but what's the real underlying resentment that's happening under there? Here's what I think it is. I think it's that we realize that the more of someone else's load I have to carry, 
the less I can carry my own load, right? See, this is the thing. I think in each of our hearts, there's an understanding that God has called us to our own portion. He's called us to the load that we should carry, and it's what we have to do to experience wholeness, and we all want to experience wholeness, but there is a sense inside. The more I have to be this person's burden carrier, the less whole I get to be myself. That's the part that's hard about saying it's not you, it's me. It's saying at some point we've got to look at that person that we've been trying to rescue and say, I'm not whole. I, I, I need to get a life. I need to be whole. I need to be able to carry my own burden. I've been carrying yours for so long, I don't even know what, what I need to go pick up out of mine, but I gotta, go, I gotta go do that. I gotta go pick up my own burden so that I can be whole. There's a, there's a sentence that my friends Les and Leslie Parrott wrote. Um, Les and Leslie are, are clinical psychologists, brilliant folks. I have so much respect for them. Married, you know, they're married to each other, um, and I always tell them it would be so cool to be a fly on the wall to see them fight. I'm always interested to see how two clinical psychologists would have a marital fight between the two of them. But um, They teach a class at Seattle Pacific University called Relationships 101, and at the beginning of the class, they break out this sentence, and they tell all those students that if you can get this sentence into your groundwater, if you can adopt it and understand it and make sense of it, um, it will change all your relationships for the rest of your life. It will revolutionize the way you look at relationships. And this is that sentence. If you try to build intimacy with another person before you do the hard work of becoming whole on your own, all your relationships will become an effort to complete yourself. I'll say that again. If you try to build intimacy with another person before you do the hard work of becoming whole on your own, all your relationships will become an effort to complete yourself and they'll fall flat because there is not another human being on this planet who can complete you. You can look all over the world. Only God has the ability to complete a human being. There's not another person. Some of you, when you got married, you know, you'd, you know, you'd watched um, Tom Cruise in a movie go, you complete me, and you thought, man, that's what my wedding day is gonna be like, you know? We're gonna complete each other, right? Right? And the Bible says it just doesn't work that way. Nobody was designed to complete us. Only God completes us. So this is what a lot of folks who haven't ever had any of the rescuing tendency happening in their life, or maybe, I think we all do to some extent, but maybe they just haven't had a lot of it. They fail to understand this about people who do easily gravitate toward the rescuer role. A rescuer is a rescuer because at some point in their life, there was someone who was so much not carrying their own load that this person put their own personal wholeness on hold, tried to deal with the other person's wholeness, and they've never been able to get back there still holding the door. It's not because they're a difficult, it's not because they're a terrible person. It's not because they're trying to be controlling or they're trying to be manipulative or they're trying to be jealous or they're trying to be demanding. It's not any of those things. It's not an intentional thing. It's that there was a point in time where they had to hold the door open and they just never knew, when can I let it go? Well, the message today is you can let it go. It's time at some point to say each person should carry their own load, including me. Now, here's what's so important about this, right? If you're a rescuer in this room, this is a role that you've often played, it's not a new idea to say, okay, I'm gonna let them carry their own load, I'm gonna tell, they've gotta do whatever it takes to be whole, because when you get angry enough, that's what you'll tell them. When you get angry enough, you'll say, I'm done carrying you in this relationship. Boom, here it is, your load, you gotta carry it, it's not me. But have you noticed that you always end up going back and picking it back up again, right? 
And here's what the message is from, 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 from Jesus. Look at this. This is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, right? And then he says, I'm gonna give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Focus here, right? Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and the burden, that's the same Greek word, fortion, the load that I give you. So where do we get our wholeness? Where do we get our load in life? We get it from Jesus, He says, I'm gonna give you your load to carry. And then he says, I wanna teach you how to do it so that you can experience wholeness, right? And this is so important, right? We get so frustrated with the other person and we set their load down and we say, I can't keep carrying this person anymore. And Jesus says, it only works if you take two steps to the right and pick up your load at the same time. Because if you don't pick up your load and all you do is just put theirs down, you will come back to it and you will pick it up again or you will pick up someone else's. Jesus is saying, you gotta put the other person's load down two steps to the right and pick up yours. And Jesus says, I want you to be whole. I want you to have self-discipline. I want you to have accountability. I certainly want you to have self-worth and I will teach you how to do it, but you gotta get it from me. You gotta get it from me. See, this is the thing. It's so hard and I'm on overtime already. I don't know how that happened. It's so hard for a person who plays the role of the rescuer. You know, if we're playing the role of the rescuer, we walk around with the name tag helper. Everywhere we go, I'm the helper, I'm the helper, I'm the person who's gonna step in and do what needs to be done. I'm the solver, I'm the fixer, I'm the person who's got it all figured out. It is so hard after playing that role for so long to take off the name tag and say, I'm the person who needs help. I need some help. To be able, when we put down the other person's burden and we pick up our own, to reach our hands out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to teach me some stuff here because I haven't got it figured out. I need a life. I don't have a life. I need to get a life, but I need to get it from you because I know you can teach me how to do this. It's hard, but it's what we're called to do. There's a passage in the scripture, and I didn't put it in the IMAX. I'm sorry for that, but one of my favorite passages in scripture is actually the first passage I ever preached for. When I came uh, to New Spring, first, first message I ever preached back in 2007 was on this passage, but it's in the book of Luke, and uh, Jesus is having dinner uh, at the home of Mary and Martha, two sisters who wanted to do something nice for Jesus and his entourage, and, uh, and, and they all come in, and the dinner is being prepared, and Martha's working very hard to make sure all the details are right, and what you should know about Martha is she's a wonderful lady, but she's a consummate coach. She's very used to telling people what they need to do to be better. She's going about all the work, trying to get the dinner ready, and she notices that her sister Mary, who in her mind should be in there helping her with the dinner, is sitting in front of Jesus. She's plopped down at Jesus' feet, listening to what Jesus is teaching. Now here's the thing, in that culture, it made sense for all the guys to be standing around, because culturally that's what they did. But she expected Mary to be in the kitchen. She looks in that room, there's a big group of guys Right, listening to Jesus teach, but in the middle of that, Mary's sticking out like a sore thumb, sitting down right in front of Jesus, listening to everything that Jesus was teaching. And so Martha decides that, and she does what coaches do, she decides she's gonna fix it. She's gonna fix Jesus. She's gonna coach Jesus up on what he needs to do. She goes into the living room and she says to Jesus, listen, do you not care that I'm having to make this meal all by myself? My sister's not helping me at all. And then she gives Jesus an order. One of the only times you ever see this in scripture, she says, now tell her to get in there and help me. Right? Kind of what a coach looks like sometimes. Not always. Look at what Jesus says. It says, The Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all these details, but there is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Okay, look up here. We're almost done. Here's what Jesus is saying. 
he's saying, you're really, really flustered right now. You're going in about a thousand directions. You're, you're very distracted and you've got a lot of things going on and, and all of them for good reasons. He says, my dear Martha, he's saying, I get it. I understand your heart. <clears throat> but he said, you're not experiencing wholeness right now. You don't have a life. You have a lot of pots and pans. You have stuff burning on the stove, but you don't have a life. And he's saying, Mary has a life because she's sitting here and she's reaching up to me and she's saying, teach me how to have a life. Teach me what it's gonna take to be whole. Teach me to carry my own burden. And he said, listen, once somebody comes to me and opens up their hands and says, I just want to get a life. I wanna be whole. And Jesus, you're the only person who can teach me how to do it. He says, I'm not gonna let anybody take that away from them. If you're a rescuer in this room, you've probably been taken advantage of more than most of us. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to protect you. You come to me, you stretch your arms out, and you say, Jesus, teach me. He says, I'm going to build a wall of protection around you that says nobody's going to take this away from them. Because if they're going to come to me and they're going to ask me, and they're going to tell me they want to get a life, I'm going to give them a life because that's what I'm in the business of doing. Right? Father, thank you for the fact that this is what you do. Thank you for the fact that you give us a life when we're broken. And that we can count on you always to be there for us when we come to you and say, I'm struggling to carry my own load. Help me, teach me, show me that you are there for us. And you say to us, that will not be taken away from you. We love you, Father, and pray that you will dismiss us with your grace. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you so much for being here with us today.